So my mom tells me this story from my childhood that I always find really funny. I have no memory of it. I'm not sure if it's because I was traumatized or just I was too young. But essentially what she says is that I was at the greenhouse where my dad worked and she worked as well for a while. We also lived on the property there and she was watering the flowers. And I would stand on the hose that she was using to water the flowers. So anytime she would move, the hose would go with her and I would stumble backwards off the hose and I don't know why I would think that's fun, but I thought it was a great time. So I just kept on standing on the hose. And she said, Micah, get off the hose. I'm trying to work and it's bad enough that you have to be here with me. No, she didn't say that much. But she said, get off the hose. You're going to fall down and hurt yourself. I said, okay. Then she would turn around and start watering and immediately I would step back on that hose. I don't know why. I don't know what I wanted out of that. So she'd say, Micah, are you listening to me? I'd say, yes, mom. Because I always said, yes, mom. I was very polite. Maybe not. I don't know. But I would say, yes, mom, I'm listening. And she said, don't stand on the hose. You're going to hurt yourself. So she turned around, and I got right back up on the hose, and I stood on it. I don't know if I was tightrope walking or what, but I got right back up on the hose. So she turned around and saw me again, and she gave the hose one big yank, and I fell right on the ground into the mud, and I started crying. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? I told you not to stand on the hose. I did not listen very well. I was not a good listener. She was trying to teach me a lesson, and I did learn that lesson, but not through listening. It's a lot easier to learn just from listening and obeying. Now, we as people, even as adults, we are not the greatest listeners. I think this is something that all of us share with toddlers, like I was at the time. We're not good listeners. We want to surround ourselves with people that say the same ideas as us. We want to live in our own little echo chamber so that people just affirm our ideas back to us all the time. We say, yes, we're right. I don't have to listen to you because I already think that same exact thing. We don't like to listen. We want to affirm that we've got it all figured out. And we have a lot of reasons why we don't want to listen and a lot of ways in which we don't listen. Not all of them with bad intent. I wasn't a two-year-old kid thinking, I'm going to not listen to my mom because I just don't like her. I, it wasn't bad intent. I just thought it'd be fun to stand on that hose. And so I did it. Dumb, yes. But mean-spirited, no, I don't think so. But we have a lot of reasons. Maybe we don't trust the person that is telling us something, right? I, di I did trust my mom prior to that moment. Afterwards, if I had known she did it, I might not have trusted her. She pulled the hose right out from under me. But I trusted her at the time. Or maybe our experience has told us something different than what we're being told, so we, we don't want to listen to that thing. Or maybe we are feeling stubborn or self-confident. And we do the same thing with God, not just people. There are several ways in which people throughout time have not really listened to God. I think they can, they, I'm sure there's an exhaustive or non-exhaustive list, but some ways I came up with is that people don't listen to God by first listening and then rebelling against him, right? So they hear it, and then they actively choose, I'm not going to listen to that. Or they could just not listen at all. I don't even care to hear what you have to say, God. I'm not going to listen to it. And that's a way they don't listen. Or they can listen to what they think God said. And that is really dangerous, too. Because, you know, if you don't have exactly what God said down, 
and you're following what you think God said, just think about that with a person. If a person tells you something and you say, yeah, yeah, I think I got it, and then you go and do something different, it's not going to work out the way the person originally told you. Same thing happens with God. So we're going to go through this today, talking about listening a little bit. The first way, hearing what God says, but then actively rebelling against him. I think the kings of Judah and Israel really exemplified this. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. They're finally able to return and rebuild the temple. But these people were very aware that the reason they had been taken into captivity was because they were disobedient. The people that got to go back to the land were fully aware that the reason that they got taken to Babylon was because they did not listen to God. And many of the people at the time that Ezra and Nehemiah are leading them are mournful because whether they see the temple and it's not as glorious as it once was and they're all weeping or because they have the law read to them and it cuts to their heart and they say, wow, we never did those things as, as we should have or we're not doing them as well as we can now. They were constantly mourning and weeping in front of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, as leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're supposed to spurn these people on to do work, right? On building the temple, on getting their lives together, on rebuilding the nation. But also, they have to realize that in order to maintain that nation, they do have to have a level of mourning for what they've done in the past, right? They have to remember what they did in their disobedience because if they don't, they could build up a nation just to be taken captive again because they weren't obedient to God. So they talk about this a lot. In Nehemiah 9, there's a message given in the form of a song or a poem, and the focus is on the history of Israel as a people, and it talks about how faithful God has been to them, which is the encouraging part. That's the, come on, guys, God's faithful to us. We need to keep going. We need to get to work. But then also highlights how rebellious they've been in the past as a nation so that they don't forget, right? That's the aspect of you should mourn a little bit, but not so much that you're ineffectual in your work. And this was Judah, a tribe of Israel, God's special people. They had the law, they knew it, and then they willingly left it. And it talks about this in Nehemiah 9. If you want to turn there with me, Nehemiah chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse 26 of this song. And it says here, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to who turned them to yourself and they worked great provocations this is talking about ancient Israel and the tribe of Judah therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them and in the time of their trouble when they cried out to you you heard from heaven and according to your abundant mercies you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies so even though you were disobedient you cried out to God in your disobedience, and God came and saved you. Within verse 28, but after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. The words would not hear is also translated would not obey or would not listen in other translations. The words are welo shameu, which is would not hear intelligently. 
That's what I was doing when I was standing on that hose. I wasn't hearing intelligently. I was hearing. I could hear what my mom said, but I wasn't responding to that with any sort of intelligence. So what's the consequence? They heard, but they acted proudly and they shrugged their shoulders. They stiffened their necks. They thought much too highly of themselves and much too low of God. And if by heeding God's commands they were supposed to live, then by rebelling against God's commands, they would not. Hence, the captivity in Babylon. So these people listened, they heard, but they didn't obey. And that, in that way, they did not listen. Now what about people who don't listen at all? We're going to turn to the example of the Pharisees. Now it's not that the Pharisees never did anything that God said, but I think they did so much of what they wanted to do that they drowned out what God wanted them to do. So they, they stopped listening to God in favor of what they wanted to do. Matthew 15 is where we'll start this account. Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? So these same people, the same people group who returned from exile in Babylon, this is years later, but the same nation, recognizing that they were conquered for rejecting God's commands, they began instituting their own laws to protect themselves from breaking that true law. And this is how we get things like the Talmud um, and also the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Talmud, it's broken into two parts. It was written down in the second century AD. So quite a while after the exile, but it was passed down orally from the second temple period. So about 516 to 200, or 516 BC to 200 AD, it was oral law only. It was just passed down by word of mouth. We also have the Mishnah, which is the teachings of Jewish rabbis during the second temple period, and the Gemara, which is commentary, clarification, and discussion on uh, the Mishnah. So we have all these books just meant to be extra rules and discussion on those extra rules apart from what God said in the Bible. So to give you a sense of how far this can go, Leviticus 23, you don't have to turn there, verses 33 to 36, three verses commanding the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Pretty evident, pretty clear, short, concise. It's repeated several times throughout the Torah, but three verses commanding the Feast of Tabernacles. The Mishnah on the other hand, which again is, the, is teachings from the Jewish rabbis during the second temple period, says this, just, this is just one tiny part within the Mishnah about what to do during the Feast of Tabernacles. This says, an egg laid on a festival may be eaten on the same day. So say the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel, however, say it must not. So an egg laid on the day of the Feast of Tabernacles, one, one camp of Jews was like, go ahead and eat it. The other one was like, are you kidding me? A chicken did work for that. You're going to profit from work of a chicken? They can't do this. They proceeded for 45 paragraphs in the Gemara on this one line, explaining two teachings from two different schools in the Jewish leadership. So the law of God was drowned out by these teachings, absolutely drowned out. It was a speck in the pool compared to the flood that they put on everybody else. Matthew 23, 23 comments on this as well when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These things you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Meyer's New Testament commentary says this was an actual oral teaching of the Pharisees that they had to strain their wine for gnats so that they wouldn't accidentally swallow one and then be unclean. So Jesus is taking an actual teaching and speaking hyperbolically about it using what the Pharisees actually believed you should do. Now obviously, unclean is unclean. This doesn't mean go ahead, eat the gnat. That's good for you. You should do that. But the thing is, they were swallowing the camel, another unclean animal. They were accepting unclean by trying to remove unclean in a smaller amount. And the word here, to swallow, is katapinontes, to swallow, to drink down, to devour, consume, gulp entirely. This is the same word when it says death is swallowed up in victory. It is utterly consumed. They have no issue getting the camel down. But that gnat just, man, it chokes them. No issue with the camel. So they focused so heavily on what they had added to God's instruction that they began to accept evil and rejection of God's law with no problem. So they refused to listen to God at all because they had drowned his word out with so much of their own understanding. The third way that we can listen, but maybe not follow, or maybe just not listen at all, is to listen what we think God's saying, or God has said. And I think that Eve exemplifies this concept really well. Um, It doesn't always have to be malicious. We talked about that earlier. Not listening doesn't always mean that you're an evil, horrible person that just seeks to reject God and hate him. It can be a little bit more good-hearted than that, but it can still not be good. It's always wrong to not listen to God, but it doesn't mean the person is always evil in their heart. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll see a command from God. And then we'll compare it to what Eve says about that same command. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Notice he commanded the man because Eve wasn't made yet at this point. So he commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now turn over just one chapter to Genesis 3. Now, so God gave a command to Adam. Adam was the head of the household, and he explained to Eve what this command was. And when Satan questions Eve on this command, look at what she says here. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, notice what she says that God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you remember in Genesis 2, God ever saying to Adam, Nor shall you touch it, lest you die? He never said that. But Eve added this in, and that became something very, very crucial to her. The Enduring Word Bible Commentary says, Eve misquoted God's command to Adam. Her words, you shall not eat it, and lest you die, are close enough. 
But she added to the command when she said, nor shall you touch it. Of course, it's a good idea to completely avoid temptation, right? You don't need to come near to sinning. No good could come from touching it, but it's still dangerous to add to the command of God. So this is just to show that this isn't just me saying that she added. Many people uh, read that. Genesis is very intentional with how it writes. Um, A velocity of narrative changes a lot throughout it. There's a lot that it's like a microcosm of this account happened and there's a lot of information and then it just skips over a lot of time and it's like, well, I'll put like one sentence in there for hundreds of years. That's like the nature of Genesis, but it, it tends to take away more. It doesn't add. I don't think Eve was clarifying God's command for us, right? So when God says to Adam, don't eat of the tree lest you die, it would be uncharacteristic of Genesis to then add information later and for Eve to have actually given the more complete command. Clark's commentary on this says, nor shall you touch it. Some Jewish writers actually state, now this is pure speculation, but it's interesting, it says they state, as soon as the woman asserted this, the serpent threw her against the tree and said, see, you have touched it and you're still alive. You may therefore safely eat of the fruit for you shall not die. Now, I think that's a good illustration. I'm not saying that's exactly what happened historically, but it's a good illustration of when you add to God's command and you begin to focus on that, what you think God said or what you think he meant, that can be incredibly dangerous. So we can begin to focus too heavily on what we've added rather than what God said. Now, we haven't added to God's command, meaning I'm not saying you've changed the word of God, but sometimes we can do this even with things that sound familiarly biblical, right? We will perpetrate these things like, oh, well, you know, the Bible says this, and it's like, it doesn't. That's a poem that you might have drawn from or gets quoted in sermons a lot, but that's not what the Bible says. And we can do this all the time throughout the Bible, so we need to be in our Bibles reading exactly what God says, because otherwise we begin to paraphrase, and the paraphrase turns into an interpretation, and the interpretation turns into not even what the Bible says anymore, but we keep repeating it as if Yeah, that's pretty much what the Bible says, and this is dangerous. So we've been pretty scathing to these people who have not listened. I think we should be critical, right? We should, those examples are there for us to learn from and to listen to. So we should be critical. Um, We need to flesh out exactly what's going on in each of these circumstances so that we don't make the same mistakes. However, I think when we do these kinds of studies, we can tend to Um, be a little bit more judgmental. We can think, well, I haven't really gone as far as them. You know, that was an example of not listening. I want to stay away from that, but don't worry. I'm like a mile over. You know, I'm not even close to that. Or or possibly we could even look at that example and say, well, in hindsight, the answer is pretty clear. Yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do. Don't add to God's word just like Eve did. Or, hey, I'm not going to be the Pharisees and write 43 paragraphs on one little line of text about eggs. I just won't do that. Then we'll be fine. That's not true. You might be closer than you think you are. So I think listening for us today is also not easy. Um, Some of the times that people did listen to God that we're gonna look at now are actually more incredible than we give them credit for because I'm not sure, at least that I would have had what it takes to listen like they did. So as we go through some of these examples of people listening, think to yourself, in that context, would I have had the faith it takes to listen to what God said? Or would I have followed one of these examples of not listening? I think I probably more often would fall into the not listening category. So we've established the baseline we should listen to God. But if we realize how difficult it can be to do that sometimes, then 
We might look at the bad examples with a little bit more grace. We might look at the good examples with a little bit more admiration. And I think we'll take a little bit closer look at the application of listening to God with a little bit more seriousness. So I want to start off by saying that God's instruction to us oftentimes, and I don't want to say all the time because sometimes it's very clear, but oftentimes it doesn't make sense to us as humans, right? If I just do this thing, if I do this, I will get this reward. That's kind of how the world works. God's way sometimes feels contrary to that. If you give of yourself, you'll be blessed for it. Well, no, no, then I'll have less, right? It doesn't make sense to human reasoning, but it's God's reasoning and he tells us to do it. And so we should start off with that understanding that listening to God doesn't always make sense from a human perspective. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Romans 11. Romans 11, I'm going to read it from the ESV, but it's not terribly different. I, just, I really like the, the way the ESV puts things sometimes. I, I don't like when people use, uh, there's the verse that says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And we, we sometimes tend to use that to mean, well, God's so high above us and we're so low. But in context, that verse actually deals more with um, a response to sinful people, right? His ways are not our ways. If you read it in Isaiah, it's like he forgives. That's his way. It's different than our way, right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. He seeks to forgive. We're a little bit more grudge holding. So I don't want to use that, but I think Romans 11.33 says it very well. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I really like that verse. That explains that really well, but I think it just actually heightens it a little bit more. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So as you go through these examples, ask yourself, do I have the courage or the faith to listen and accept exactly what God says or follow exactly what he says to do? No more, no less. Not adding, not taking away, no matter if it makes sense to us or not. So first we'll go over the faith to listen to exactly what he says and accept it. And I think this is really well exemplified by the disciples. Uh, So there's a scenario where Jesus is in Nazareth and he's speaking to the Jews about who he is. They don't believe who he is. And he's, he's giving them basically a testimony as to why he is who he is. So John 6, and we'll start in verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So this is the first uncomfortable thing that Jesus states to them that is hard for them to accept, right? He has come down from heaven. That's a pretty bold statement for just any man to make. Now, that's again looking in hindsight at Jesus. Yeah, of course he came down from heaven. He's God. That's where he was from. He had to come from there. But to the Jews at the time, this was hard to wrap their mind around. People don't come from heaven, right? So what is he talking about here? This was uncomfortable. 43, verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. He would resurrect. He was sent by the Father. He was the fulfillment of being taught by God. 
meaning he was God. He has seen the Father face to face. Imagine how difficult it would be with a Jewish mindset to accept these things. But he said them. Verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can the man give us his flesh to eat? Eat his flesh? What is this guy talking about? He had some good things early on, but this is weird. This is uncomfortable. This is not kosher. Literally not kosher. And also that he would grant eternal life. He would do that? How is this man supposed to do that by us eating his flesh? Insane. Verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So eat his, eat his flesh and drink his blood? Transgress the law? Be unholy and unclean? That's what he wants of us? I'm not listening to that. I'm not following what he says there. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. He taught this in the synagogue. Could you imagine if someone came up here to give a sermon and they said anything like this? That guy would not be speaking again for a while. He'd be off the list. But I'm just saying, he spoke this in the synagogue. It wasn't like he's in the street. This is like ratified by the Jewish community because they let him get up there and speak. And they're supposed to listen to him? Could you imagine? Verse 60 says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So can you imagine how difficult it would be to hear this from the man that you've trusted for all this time? The man that spoke such wisdom and so eloquently and so rebelliously against the authority that you know is corrupt with such bravery and strength to come into the synagogue and say this. And not just say this, but to re be rejected by his country and the leadership, but also his own disciples who followed him into this town, seeking to support him to help spread his message, and they even left. You have a big following of people around you, and they're all gone, except for 12 people. Could you imagine how much faith it takes to listen to exactly what God says and accept it, even when you don't understand? I want that kind of faith. This is a really good lesson, and if it doesn't make sense right now, stick around, because it might. And with God, it will. And we know that this did work out, because the flesh and blood comment turned out to be symbolic 
about his sacrifice for us. If he had just said that at the beginning, imagine, oh, wow, that clears it up. Thank you. Although I guess they also didn't accept that he would die for them either, so they still might have left. But it worked out. They just didn't know it was going to work out. And still they had the faith and the courage to listen in spite of everyone else rejecting him. Let's look at another example. This is faith to follow exactly what he tells us to do. And for this example, I want to look at Israel and uh, ancient Egypt as captives. If you'll turn with me to Exodus 12. Exodus chapter 12, this is where God institutes the Passover to Israel. And we know this, we rehearse this every single year. It's probably a a fairly common or familiar verse or, or set of verses here, a familiar account. But have we looked at it in this way before? Have we looked at exactly what they did based on exactly what God told them to do? Exodus 12, starting in verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house and strike you. Familiar story. So the Israelites are told here that God himself was going to pass through Egypt. Now we don't have the same view as they did at the time. But look at any of the accounts where God himself appears to anyone in the Old Testament and immediately they shout out, I'm going to die. That's it. I've seen God. I've heard his voice. I'm going to die. Could you imagine he's right outside the door? There would be a little fear there. There would be a little hesitance. You would not go outside that door. You would be terrified. In a good way, it's a healthy fear of God because he is powerful and incredible. But we kind of look at this and we say, yeah, God was going to do this thing. They would have seen this as God himself is going to do this thing. He's not having it done. He's coming to do it. This was going to be in Egypt, this God. How incredible. How frightening. They're also told that something called the Hamashit, the destroyer, was going to come and would be allowed into their houses if they didn't listen the destroyer. That is not comforting at all. So God himself, the almighty God, the creator of the universe, who even looking upon him causes death, and the destroyer are going to come through your streets. But don't worry, the destroyer won't be allowed in to kill your firstborn if you board your doors and windows, amass an arsenal and defend yourself. Take watch all night so that nobody breaks in. Build fortresses around your home in the city. It doesn't say that. The destroyer will come in unless you put blood of the lamb on your doorpost and lintel. That does not sound safe if I am an ancient Israelite. That sounds terrifying. Can you imagine the faith it took to have no defense against this incredible, awesome power that was about to sweep through the streets of Egypt in their little shack houses, but don't worry, you'll be protected by blood. Not even blood of a powerful animal, a lamb. But they listened. They listened to exactly what God told them to do and did exactly what he said. No more, 
no less. They didn't argue. They would do plenty of that later, but they didn't at this moment argue. They listened. They didn't fight him on it. So do we have this kind of faith? Do we have this kind of courage or confidence? Do we have the kind of faith it takes to accept exactly what God says and to trust him, even if we don't understand what it means at the time? Do we have the kind of faith it takes to do exactly what God asks us to do, even if it seems contrary to what would make reasonable sense to us? Or are we more like the first examples, following what we think God has said, but really only hearing ourselves? Or are we not listening at all? Or worse, are we in open rebellion against him? In John 8, 47, Christ takes a step further in the concept of listening, not only saying that listening is important, but he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. May this never be said about us. That is intense. You don't hear them because you're not of God. Romans 10, 17, Paul talks about hearing as well. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's take some time to quiet out the world, quiet out our own thoughts, and really listen to what God says to us in his word, no matter how difficult the saying, no matter how difficult the instruction, and no matter how little we understand it, we have to listen to God.